0: for us. Please do uh, open up to uh, Genesis 47. We're picking back up over the next, I think, five weeks it is. We'll work our way through these uh, concluding chapters of Genesis. We've been working our way through uh, before we had a bit of a break um, uh, over Christmas. So it is great to be back in that uh, together, and please do follow along as we work our way through this evening. But, Daddy promised that you would play with us those were the words of Lydia Grace my six-year-old daughter um, just a few nights ago I wonder if um, any other parents out there have ever heard similar uh, words coming your way and sometimes um, in this particular case Lydia Grace was right I think earlier in the day I'm sure at some point I had promised to play with her. But the way things had just worked out, the time had flown by, the evening was gone, and it was now time to go to bed. We hadn't had time to play. I'm also sure, by the way, that sometimes she isn't right. (laughs) Somehow she imagines these promises coming her way. But anyway, leaving aside who was right or not, this all got me thinking. Promises really are a big deal, aren't they? They're a big thing. Promises are things that sometimes we even just begin to build our days around. We begin to build our lives around, even. For example, that promise to play with Lydia Grace and Naomi the other, the other day at the end of my working day, well, that might have just encouraged Lydia Grace to finish her homework a bit quicker, or Naomi to, to finish her dinner a bit quicker, as she sometimes needs help encouraging to do that. Or if we want to go slightly bigger, then, what about other promises we might receive? Promise from somebody at work, a boss at work, that if we hang in for another year, if we complete that next project well, well, then a promotion might be coming our way, or an opportunity to, new, to work on that new, fancy new project. That would shape how you work that year. It's a promise that changes things or what about a promise as we see at a wedding ceremony of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband promise to love to cherish each other until death no matter what comes for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health Again, it's a promise, isn't it? That's going to change things, that we can live our lives shaped by giving a sense of stability and peace for our lives, knowing that, well, in this case, someone has promised to be there by our side no matter what. But, of course, the thing as we begin here, as I, as I began with, with promises, is that they can also end up being broken. No time to play with my girls at the end of the day. No promotion ends up being offered at the end of the year. And sometimes, sadly, even marriages with those promises can end up breaking down. And given all of that, it would be tempting, I think, wouldn't it, to give up on promises entirely. After all, surely, they're just a path towards disappointment as we find that people let us down our hopes and dreams dashed. But here is what I want us to see from our passage tonight, as we pick back up this series. Well, human promises, even ones that we do build our lives around, can end up being broken, not coming to pass, with God, with the Lord, that is completely different. Because to pick up the words uh, from the song, The Lord is my salvation, that we'll be singing later. The Lord flowers each promise of his word. That is, every promise that God makes, as he makes it, you can imagine it, it is like that seed that is planted in the ground. But as it's planted, we can be 100% sure Know with total confidence and certainty that that promise will grow. And it will grow into full bloom. It will flower, come into all its fullness, all that the goodness that the Lord had intended for that promise. Basically, we could say this what God promises will happen. Will happen, not might happen not could happen, not even probably will happen. Will happen. And as we see that, what a difference that can make for us, right? Particularly, as we were thinking about earlier, as we think of how promises can shape our lives, can be things that we can even build our lives around. Because if this is true about God and his promises... And it's also true that he has made good promises for you. Well, suddenly you find words, promises that are rock solid, that you can genuinely build your life around without that lurking sense of fear and and possible disappointment being down the road. In God and his word, we find rock solid promises that we can stand on every day, which we can hope in, Every day. Isn't that what we need? Even as we go on into a new year filled with its uncertainty, its instability, the Lord's word stands and holds fast. So, thinking about promises, what promises of God do we see here then in this passage in Genesis 47? Well, actually, surprisingly, given all that introduction, there are none. But instead, as we now come towards the end of this book of Genesis, a book that has been up to this point full of promises, what we see here in this chapter is the beginning of the clear fulfillment of those promises. Promises that God made first to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Promises that show us God's faithfulness here as we see it working out. Promises like that God would make his people into a great nation, promises that he would bless all nations of the earth through his people's offspring, promises that God would give his people a good land to live in. Those great promises and God's faithfulness to them are what we're going to be thinking about then this evening. So let's pick this up by going for the middle one of those three, because that's really what we see uh, on view in the first half of our passage, verses 13 to 26. The flowering of God's promise to bless all nations, all nations of the earth through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's offspring. Now, as we come to this passage, remember again with me the basic situation of where we were. You might have been with us, you may not, but let's set the scene. Remember, what we find ourselves at this point in, uh, in Genesis is this, we're in the middle of this seven-year-long famine. Do you remember that Pharaoh had dreamed about and Joseph had gone and told him what it was all about? And we read last time that now Joseph's family have moved to Egypt and they've settled in the land of Goshen. Which is good, isn't it? Because look at verse 13 with me where we begin this evening as we set the scene. There we read these words. There was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine a terrible situation. And apart from Joseph, we see here, don't we, that his family in Canaan, if they'd been left there, they would surely be dying. But as we'll see later, that's no longer the case. But for now, as we continue on here, the focus really, doesn't it, switches from Jacob and Joseph's family to the land of Egypt and the Egyptians. Because as we read about here, even Egypt is suffering now as a result of this famine. And well, at first glance, I don't know if you you thought this as, as was being read earlier, it might seem like we see here harshness in the case of Joseph as he seemingly reduces the Egyptians to a life of servitude, taking their livestock, their land, even buying the people for themselves, for Pharaoh. I don't think that is how this passage is presenting it. Instead, when we dig a bit deeper and we look at the details of this passage, I think what we do see here really is Joseph blessing. Joseph being presented as this gracious savior. To see this, uh, look, look with me at a few specific details. First, notice that while Joseph in verse 16 is the one who suggests the selling of livestock, in exchange for food. Remember, the people's money has run out. It's the people, if you look in 18 and 19, the people themselves who come and offer themselves, don't they, to be servants of Pharaoh. The people, you see, themselves do not expect to receive something for nothing. Nothing. And while we then do go on to read that the people become servants to Pharaoh as a result of this, we see in this not a harsh slavery, not the kind of slavery that maybe you and I first think of when we think of that word. No, look at how this all kind of comes to pass. In verses 23 and 24, if you jump with me, we see actually the very generous terms of this deal this deal to sell themselves and their land to Pharaoh in exchange for food. Verse 23, what do we see there? Well, we see first that Joseph actually, as part of this deal, offers the the people to have the seed that they will need the next year to sow in their land. Maybe what we're seeing here is that this is coming to the end of this famine. And second, verse 24, if you look with me, the taxation rate, as it were, well, it will only be 20%. One-fifth given to Pharaoh. And four-fifths, we read there, kept for their own. Now, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know uh, if there are any tax experts out there, but I think 20% is actually not too bad. I'm looking at Derek here. I'm, I'm not sure. We can talk afterwards. But 20% doesn't, doesn't seem too unreasonable and actually was really good compared to what we read about in other cl- local areas at the time. We read there that farmers could have to pay half or two-thirds of their produce in exchange for the land. And just remember in the background of this, given the desperate situation of these people, given that they themselves had come to Joseph, if Joseph had wanted to, he could have almost certainly pushed this percentage as high as he wanted, couldn't he? Supply and demand and all that. This was, if he was trying to, you know, audition on Alan Sugar's The Apprentice, he would not be getting through. He would be the next person to get the figure, the finger. And the key here then, I think, in all of this, in seeing Joseph's actions, as we weigh them up and summarize them, is the response of the people that we see at the end. What's their response? Are they they grumbling? Are they angry? Are they complaining? Well, no, it seems to be a simple response of gratitude. Look at verse 25. You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. This takes us back to all that we've Seen here in this story, doesn't it? From chapter 41 all the way through. God, through Joseph, his chosen servant, has worked to save not only his own people from starvation, from death, but also the many other people in the surrounding nations, too. And notably, of course, as we're reading here, the Egyptians. What we see here surely has to be, doesn't it, the flowering of God's promise to bless all nations through his people's offspring. To Jacob in Genesis 28, he had said this, In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Well, what greater blessing could Jacob and his offspring bring than to bring life where there would otherwise almost be certain death. Because of God's work to bless through Joseph, what we read here at the end of chapter 47 is not of a people weeping and mourning as death reigned, as it would have done if Joseph hadn't been here. No, as we said, instead, what do we see? We see a grateful people alive and saying to Joseph, you have saved our lives. Where apart from Joseph, because of the famine, there would only be death and grief. Now, here we see life and hope. And as we read of Jacob coming to live in the land and of his own blessing of Pharaoh as we did last time, it is hard to imagine that Jacob himself wouldn't have seen this, wouldn't have had this promise in mind as he watched on, seeing the blessing that his own offspring, his own son Joseph was bringing to these Egyptians. God was proving himself faithful to his promise, wasn't he? He was flowering it and causing it to bloom. And of course, as we continue on beyond Genesis through the Old Testament and to the New Testament, we see, don't we, the continuation of that as God brings that promise to full bloom. As we read prophecy after prophecy of this future promised offspring still to come, who will come to bless the nations. And of course, we see that in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Joseph back then brought life where otherwise there would have been certain death for these Egyptians and others who came to him for food, so too Jesus brings life. Brings life where there would otherwise be certain death. And he brings it to all who will come to him, whoever they may be, whatever nation they may come from. And the life, of course, that Jesus came to offer to those around him 2,000 years ago and to all who would come to him after, well, it is so much greater than the life that Joseph offered, wasn't it? See, one day those same Egyptians who said to Joseph, you have saved our lives, well, they would ultimately go on to die. But as we were thinking about last Sunday morning, if you were with us, Jesus, the life, came to bring life even beyond death Paul writing to Timothy says this and picking up on the language of saving and salvation he says this the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost we all are sinners just like Paul was. And yet Jesus came to save us from eternal judgment for that sin. Judgment that we rightly deserve. He took that sin upon himself on the cross, meaning that no longer do we need to fear death because what lies beyond it is not judgment, but eternal life. For those of us who are Christians this evening, we too, like the Egyptians, to Joseph, can call out, can't we? And say with so much thankfulness, You have saved us. You have saved our lives. And as God's promise made makes clear, that offer of blessing of life is to all nations. People right across our world are right now, aren't they? As we gather, people right across our world are also gathering. And they too, wherever they may be, can be saying right along with us, thank you, Jesus. You have saved our lives. And of course, that is what is continuing to be held out, to go out, isn't that? Offer of salvation, of life in Jesus' name, to all here this evening, to all in Belfast, and right to the ends of the earth. As foreshadowed here in the person and work of Joseph, God has flowered the promise of his word, hasn't he? To bless all nations through the promised offspring, through Jesus. This evening, let's just come again with thankfulness in our heart. Thankfulness and praise that that is true for us. We're going to sing these words, but they reflect so much. Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save. Faithful in love. My debt is paid. The victory won. The Lord is my salvation. God's promise has come to pass. And we can rest and rejoice in that this evening. And allow it to be the firm foundation on which we build our lives. But as we said at the beginning, that promise is not the only one that we see on view here in this passage, because as we look on now to 27 and 28, those verses, we also see another one, as we see now the flowering of God's promise to make his people into a great nation. As we see this, read with me verse 27 again. It says, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is the first time we see here in in Genesis that the name Israel is used specifically as the name for Jacob, uh, sorry, for the people, instead of just as the name for Jacob, because the people in general are on view here. And in verse 27, we see more clearly than anywhere else up to this point the flipping of Genesis from being this book full of promises to now being this book where we begin to see the fulfillment of those promises. See, maybe you recognize as we read it again from verse 27, some of the language there. Did any of it ring a bell? Probably right the way back through to Genesis 1, right? Right? God making mankind and saying to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then we see that commanded again. But not only in Genesis do we see it commanded, we also see it for God's people promised. Listen again with me to some of these promises that are given. Abraham receives this promise in Genesis Genesis 17 that God will make him exceedingly fruitful. Isaac received this promise in Genesis 26, that God would multiply his offspring as the stars of heaven. And Jacob received this promise in Genesis 35. God said to him, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And now, seen here so clearly in the choice of language, we see the flowering of these promises, don't we? No longer commanded, no longer promised, but now in actuality we see it working out. We read here that God's people were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Notice also how during this time, well, the Egyptians, we read of them, don't we, selling their livestock, selling their land, even themselves to Pharaoh. We read here that the family of Jacob, well, they're gaining possessions, aren't they? The jo- Joseph's blessing. God is blessing his people. And he has been at work, hasn't he, to make good on this promise that he would one day make them a great nation, something pretty much inconceivable, even the generation before Jacob. In fact, in Psalm 105, the psalmist picks up on exactly this fact. Towards the end of this long recounting he has of of Joseph's story, in verse 24, he uses these words. He writes that in Egypt, the Lord made his people fruitful making them stronger than their foes. And again, we have to be encouraged by this, this evening. God is a God, as we see here, who flowers each promise of his word. And in verse 28, we see that Jacob Jacob himself will have seen this with his own eyes, don't we? Though we read he was already 130 years old, God granted him another 17 years living in the land of Egypt. And what would he have seen during those 17 years? Well, he would have seen this continuing faithfulness of God in doing exactly what we've just been saying, making his people into a great nation, causing them to be fruitful and multiply. Of course, Jacob would only have seen 17 years of this, but surely that would have been enough, wouldn't it, for him to know for sure God is going to make good. On his promise and of course we today can look back and have the benefit of thousands more years can't we in which we've seen God continuing to fulfill this promise no longer do we see this promise though purely along ethnic lines as back then the making of the physical offspring of Abraham Isaac and Jacob into a great nation the Jewish nation although we do continue to see that But now, today, we continue to see this in the fact that God is making his great nation out of people from right across the nations. I've been reading and listening to this really helpful book over the past week or so. It's called Ten Questions That Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And as I was listening to it in this case, there was this little section that I'd just love to read to you for your encouragement. As I read it, think how this brings together both of these promises that we've been thinking about so far. Here's what the author, Rebecca McLaughlin, writes. She says, Today, Christianity is the most diverse belief system in the world, with roughly equal numbers of Christians living in Europe, Latin America, and Africa, and with a rapidly growing church in Asia. Christianity isn't just for for people from one country, one culture, one race, or one language. It's for people from every country, every culture, every race, and every language. In the book of Revelation, she writes, we get a glimpse of how things are going to be at the end of time. When a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, will worship Jesus, together. Just as we see it flowering here in Genesis 47, God has continued to flower this promise in the millennia since, hasn't he? Because never has it been more true than today that God's people are being fruitful and multiplying. There has never been a time before, when there have been more Christians alive on earth, more people, a part of God's great nation that he is building, a part of his kingdom. And of course, when we think about that, and when we think of those who have gone before or who will come after us as well, it is no wonder, is it, that we read those words uh, that Rebecca McLaughlin pointed us to in Revelation 7, of a great multitude that no one could number. God's words to Abraham, to number the stars if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Well, that's a promise that we see continuing to flower today, continuing to come into full bloom until one day, thinking of Revelation 7, we will see it in all its beauty, in all its glory as we stand amongst those other countless worshipers around the throne of the Lord. And of course, as we've been saying all along, seeing God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise here in Genesis 47, and how he's continued to fulfill it ever since, well, that should give us great confidence in God's word, shouldn't it? Reminding us that his word and his promises really are these rock-solid foundations on which we can build our lives. This promise itself gives us that. It gives us a promise that we can stand on, knowing that we are part of this great nation today. And it gives us a promise that we can also, as we look into the new year ahead, look to go out with. To go out with. Because until the Lord returns, we can know with confidence that he will continue to cause his people to multiply and be fruitful. How will he do that? Well, primarily, as we were thinking about this morning, through people like us, as his witnesses, as we go out talking to others of the faithfulness of God and pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us, calling them too to put their trust in him, their hope in him, so that they too can become a part of this growing nation. we look at the year ahead, I wonder how we, how God will use us to be a part of that. But for now, let's move on to this final promise, final promise that we see on view here in these final verses from 29 to 31, the flowering of God's promise to bring his people into the land of promise, the promised land. Here at the end of this passage, we see that the attention really is fully on the person of Jacob. And what we see here surely, I think, is Jacob reflecting on God's faithfulness to him up to this point. Notably, of course, in seeing the flowering of those two promises that we've just been thinking about. But here, in these final verses, I think we see him looking ahead. He looks ahead, doesn't he? Knowing that even before he traveled to Egypt, God had personally made him a promise that one day he would bring him back up out of Egypt again. And knowing God had made that promise, God had made that promise more generally that his people would also go back to the land of Canaan. What we see here is Joseph looking to that. And he asks Joseph, doesn't he? Sorry, Jacob looking to that. He asks Joseph to promise, doesn't he? He says, do not bury me in Egypt, but take me back to be buried in the land of Of the fathers with his fathers in the promised land in Canaan and as I say uh, uh, what we see here I think although he's looking back isn't he to his fathers what we see here is him looking forward because as he makes this request of Joseph it shows that he absolutely is confident that God will come through on this promise to to take him back to this land personally but also to bring his people back into this land. As Jacob now faced death, this for him, it seems, was only another opportunity to stand on and have his life shaped by God's promises. And as Jacob dies looking ahead to God's promise to one day bring his people into the inheritance of the promised land of Canaan. He stands in the line of his father, Isaac, and his his father in turn too, Abraham. Each of them looking forward, looking ahead to this promise of the land. And we see in this, I think, Jacob's faith. Faith. And his request here that Joseph take him up to be buried in the promised land points us forward to some words that we read in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And here the author of Hebrews is reflecting on the life of faith of Abraham and also the other patriarchs. And he writes this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And the author then continues on, saying that they are not thinking of this physical land of promise, but actually, as they looked forward to that, they were actually desiring a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, the author writes, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has been at work as we reflect on Jacob's life, hasn't he? He's been at work in Jacob from being this young trickster, constantly seemingly going his his own way. Well, what do we see here at the end of his life? Well, it seems a man of genuine faith and hope in his faithful God. As he dies, it seems that Jacob remembers, doesn't he? He remembers, I am a child of the promise. I am a child of the promise, God's promise here of this physical land that they would inherit of Canaan, but flowing from that, a child of the promise of the heavenly city that awaits. Of course, Jacob could only have seen this dimly, couldn't he? He couldn't know for sure what it would mean for him to enter that land of promise, even beyond the grave, but we can. We can know for sure, can't we? what this looks like because God has continued as we've said all along to flower this promise too this promise that one day he would bring his people into the land already we've seen that haven't we in the author of what the author of Hebrews has said today we can see this in the promised offspring of Jesus that seed that God would not only bless the nations through that god would not only make his people into a great nation through but ultimately through whom he would also bring them to their eternal home with him as jacob comes close to death here he not only shows his faith in god and his promises by what he says but he also doesn't he he seems to be pointing joseph to those same promises As he asks Joseph to carry him out of Egypt and bury him in the burying place of his fathers, he's reminding Joseph too, isn't he? He's saying to Joseph, listen, Egypt is not our goal. Joseph's not to think of Egypt as his true home, but instead remember that they are exiles here, waiting to go to their true home. And of course, as we think about this, this is so true for us as well, isn't it? We need this kind of reminder that Jacob gives here, that while we, like Joseph and the other Israelites here in Egypt, might enjoy many good things here on earth, this ultimately is not our true eternal home. But instead, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we as Christians, can look forward to an inheritance to come, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. That is our inheritance. For us, too, just like for Jacob, just like for Joseph, better is to come. And because it's been promised to us by God, as we've seen this evening, because it's been promised to us by a faithful God who will do what he says, we can build our lives on this promise, can't we? God's future promise is not like any promise that I might make to Lydia Grace or to Naomi. It's not even like any other human promise we might receive here on earth. No, God's promise to you and to me for this evening, that is 100% sure and certain. As we've seen tonight, he will flower each and every promise of his word. That's why, again, we can sing something like this as we will in a minute with confidence. And when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave but I will rise he will call me home the Lord is my salvation that is your promise your inheritance one that is imperishable undefiled kept in heaven for you the Lord will one day bring you through death to eternal life eternal life with himself forever And God will flower that promise for you. For you personally, you can hold on to that promise because he flowers every promise that he makes. This week, let's let that promise be our resting place. Let's let that promise be our solid ground on which we start every single day. Your faithful God is flowering his promises for you He has already blessed you through the promised offspring, Jesus Christ. And you are now a part of his great nation and he will one day lead you home. And as we then reflect on all of this and head on to this week and this year, let's let also this be an encouragement for us to go on this year, letting the whole of God's word be that resting place. And that solid ground on which we stand, because if we've seen what if what we've seen tonight is true, God flowering every promise of His word, you can know that as you read other truths and other promises in the Bible, well, God will bring those about too. And this is a book full of promises, glorious promises, words from the Lord completely unlike any other promises we receive. They will not fail. They will come to full bloom. Praise be to our God. As we look for a solid ground to stand on this year, well, let's start here, looking to our God, looking to his words. And as we look to do that, as we turn to his word every single day as we rest and rejoice in his good promises, what other better response could we have than the final response we see here in this passage? Just look with me at the final words that we read in verse 31 of this person, Jacob. We read there of Israel, and what do we read of him doing? Bowing himself upon the head of his bed. Here is a man who has learned, who has been taught, who has witnessed personally for himself over the course of his long life that his God is good and his God is faithful. And that he has learned that his God here, pictured for us, is worthy of all of his worship, all his praise. What do we see? Him bowing down at the end of his life, worshiping his God We, just like Jacob, do not deserve it. We prove ourselves unfaithful time and time again, and yet our God consistently proves himself faithful. He flowers his promises, and he will continue to. And as we see that then, this week, let's go into it with the same posture of Israel, of Jacob. This posture of bowing ourselves down, in humble praise and worship of our faithful God. And then let's pray. Let's pray that when our time comes, at the end of our life, just as we see here for Jacob, we would be found doing exactly the same. Bowing low, praising our good and faithful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just come in so much thankfulness this evening. We say, thank you for saving us, Lord. You have saved our lives. And Lord, we thank you so much for your promises. Lord, we thank you that they are promises that we can stand on. They are rock-solid promises for us to go on into this year hoping in trusting in, Lord, because ultimately they are your promises, and you are a God who always fulfills your promises. You flower each promise of your word. Lord, cause us this year to look to your word, to find that solid ground on which we stand. And Lord, cause us this year to be people who bow low in humble worship of you, So thankful for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Lord, we look to you, we praise you, we worship you because you are a good and faithful God who is worthy of all our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to close by singing this song that I've referenced a few times there and obviously it picks up this language. He flowers each promise of his word and as we sing the final verse we also read those words sing those words and when i reach my final day he will not leave me in the grave but i will rise he will call me home what great promises we can rejoice in let's do that together as we uh, sing now from here standing on god's firm promises may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in christ jesus our lord amen